We're going to be in 1 John chapter 2 this morning. We looked at chapter 1 last week, and this week we are going to start into chapter 2. I hope that I didn't set any expectations last week by covering the entirety of a chapter, because chapter 2 is probably going to take us a little bit longer, uh, but that's okay. 1 John chapter 2, if you... Uh, reach there and you're able to stand for the reading of the scripture, I'd invite you to do that at this time and uh, turn our attention and our thoughts to the scriptures this morning. We're going to read two verses, the first two verses of the chapter. I want to read them carefully with you and I want you to just listen and notice the words and even the punctuation that's here as the Lord speaks to us. 1 John chapter 2, verse number 1. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not, period. That's the end of a thought right there. These things write I unto you, that ye sin not, period. And, next thought, if any man sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this powerful passage of scripture that lies before us, that reveals to us so much about our relationship to you, who Christ is to us, and the expectation of how you want us to live as believers in this present world. I pray, Lord, that you would just speak to hearts this morning, mine included, Lord, that you would just draw our attention to Christ, and that as our, as our minds and our hearts are fixed upon him, our advocate, our propitiation, Lord, that we would just consider the, the blessing and the privilege that it is to know Him as our Lord and Savior, but then also that which uh, we are called to, a life uh, of holiness, a life of Christ-likeness. And Lord, draw us to Yourself through Your Word today and by Your Spirit. I pray that You would speak to hearts this morning in a, in a powerful way, that You would take the, the truth that applies to every one of us in a very real and very general sense, but help us, Lord, to appropriate these things to our lives in a very personal way, Lord, that you would speak to us individually. And if there be some here today that are lost and without Christ, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. And for those of us who are saved, Lord, just draw us close to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Last week, as I mentioned, we looked at chapter 1 of 1 John, which kind of laid the foundation for the book as we began to, to dig into that and, and we considered, for instance, the purpose of the book and God's desires for His people, that we would be saved, that we would know that we're saved and have that assurance and that confidence, that we would have a fellowship with God and, and with His people and, and that we would walk in fullness of joy because our relationship is right with Him as we're walking in the light and the truth of the Lord and the truth of His Word. And, and, and so we, we talked about that last week, but when we get into chapter 2, it's almost like this is the beginning of the building blocks that are laid upon the foundation. The foundation was laid in chapter 1, and now we're starting to get into uh, some of the specifics about the Christian life 
about the fruit of salvation in our lives and, and what our lives ought to look like if we are children of God. And I want to first point out to you here in this passage of Scripture that he begins with an admonition. He begins with an admonition. He says, my little children, these things write I unto you, and these next four words, that ye sin not. He says, I'm writing to you because I, I want you to be aware that the life of a believer, the life of a Christian, the life of a child of God ought to be a life that is free of sin. It, it ought to be a life that is lived in, in cleanliness and holiness and righteousness that is reflective of the righteousness of the God which saved you. Some people uh, walk through this life with this idea, even people who claim to be Christians, they have this idea that since salvation is by grace, that it is not of our own works, since we are saved by the grace of God then, and we're eternally secure in Christ, that therefore I can go about and just live my life however I want to live, live in, uh, in, in wickedness, I can live just like the lost people of this world, I can indulge in sin and, and ungodliness and everything is going to be okay because in the end, at least I'll go to heaven when I die. But I want you to know that theologically they may have a grasp of uh, salvation and, and, and eternal security, but that, those people who think that way, and if you're one of them that thinks that way, I just want you to know you, you really understand very little of the grace of God. The grace of God is not some free gift that God just gives to us and says, here, have my grace and go on and live as though you never received it. Actually, the grace of God, uh, when, when, when we receive the gift of, uh, of salvation, the gift of eternal life, there is an expectation that comes along with that, that though we are saved by grace, that we would continue to walk in good works, walk in obedience to the Lord. That, that since we've been rescued out of a life of bondage of sin, now that we've been set free from that sin, we ought not to live in that sin any longer. In Romans chapter 6, Paul asks the question, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he just got done saying uh, that, that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. God's grace is greater than our sins, and I praise the Lord for that. But then he asks the question, should we then continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we just go ahead and live our lives in wickedness and ungodliness and, 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 and in a displeasing manner to the Lord just because we're confident that God's grace is greater? And his response to his own question is, God forbid. Let that never be said of, of God's people that we would continue in sin just expecting that grace is going to abound. Because then he says, how shall they that are dead to sin live any longer therein? I was dead in my sins and Christ gave me new life and now I am called to live a life of obedience and, and, and righteousness and holiness. The Lord has called us to that. He said, be holy for I am holy. He wants us to live a life that looks like our Savior. We are to be conformed to the image of Christ. In fact, hold your place here in 1 John, if you would, please, and, and turn back to the book of Titus. The book of Titus and uh, chapter number 2. In Titus chapter 2, the Bible speaks of the grace of God here. And I'm telling you, you can go to a lot of churches today that will actually preach that somehow because of 
because of the grace of God, there is really no such thing anymore as sin for the child of God. You're, you're free from sin, so you can go out and do whatever you want to do, and, and God is just going to be okay with that because of the righteousness of Christ that's applied to you. But I want to show you what the Bible has to say about the grace of God. It says in Titus 2, in verse number 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto, or appeared to, all men. Isn't it interesting? It doesn't say to some men. It doesn't say that the grace of God which bringeth salvation hath appeared to some men or the elect. It says that, that God's grace has appeared to all men. The gospel is for everyone. Whether they receive it or not, it is for everyone. But then notice what he says in verse 12. Speaking of this grace of God, it says teaching us. That's what grace does. It, it, it saves us, but it also teaches us. It instructs us. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So if you have received the grace of God and you say, I'm a child of God and, and I have his grace applied to my life, I would say to you, praise the Lord. What is it teaching you? Is it changing you? You know, there was a song that was sung here a couple of weeks ago about how the gospel changes everything. It, it changes us. In, in, when, when we come to Christ, it changes us. I mean, the moment of salvation, I became a new creature in Christ. But I'm thankful that the gospel didn't just stop and change me once, and, and that was it. There is a transforming power of the gospel that continues in the life of a Christian. And I'm still being changed. I was thinking of someone just last night and uh, someone that has been a, a very significant influence in my life throughout my lifetime in, in many different ways. But, but I was just thinking about God's grace in his life and, and, and how I, I watched him when I was a child and, and could see that he was saved and, 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 and wanted to live for the Lord. But, you know, when you're close to someone, it's easy to see some of their flaws and and some of their struggles, and I was very aware of some of the things that he struggled with in his life. But as time has gone on and I look back, I can see a very significant difference in the man that he is today from what he was all those years ago. And the only thing I can say is that the, the grace of God has been teaching him and conforming him and changing him. I praise the Lord for that. I can look in my life and say, I know the day that I was saved, I was changed. My desires changed. My, uh, my desire for a relationship with the Lord changed. Uh, my sensitivity about my sin changed. Everything changed when I got saved. But I'm thankful that I'm not the man that I was the day after I got saved. God is still changing me. He's still working in me. And by his grace, if he gives me another you know, 50 years here to live on this earth, I hope that when I come to the end of my life, I'm not the same man that I am today but that the grace of God will continue to change me and, and that I'll be more Christ-like than I, than I am today, that I would grow in Him and that my life would be even more free of sin than it is today. And so I, I, I think it's important for us to understand here that God's expectation for His children is if you have been cleansed, if you have, as we read last week in 1 John 1, if you have uh, confessed to Him your sin, He is... Uh, he has forgiven you and He's cleansed you from all unrighteousness. You're now walking in the light. It ought to be our desire that every single day 
Well, we are conforming more to the image of Christ and that our life is becoming more free of sin each and every day. My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. You ought not to sin. And that should be very basic for us to understand, but it is a truth and a reality. If you're here today and you're living in sin, and you, maybe you're justifying that, and you're saying, well, it's okay because it's under the blood, it's not okay. These things write, write I unto you that you sin not. It's not okay. When we've got sin in our life, it, 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 it separates us. It, it breaks that fellowship that we have with God. It, it, it's a poor testimony to those around us. It, it really is kind of contradictory to what we heard in Sunday school this morning about standing for truth and standing for right. It's actually opening a door for Satan to come in and attack and have some control in our lives. And so we ought not to sin. We're to be separated from all of that. Notice even the tone of this as he says, he introduces this admonition with these words, my little children. He's writing to them as a spiritual father, as someone who, who he's not just some kind of an angry preacher that stands in the pulpit and, and says, you're, you're wicked and ungodly and quit your sinning. He's writing to them as a father who's looking on them with compassion like you would look at your children. And he recognizes that sin is damaging and it's destructive and it ruins lives. And as a, as a father would care for his children, here the apostle is, is imploring and pleading with these people for whom he lo that he loves and for whom he cares. He's pleading with them and saying, don't sin. Don't live a life of sin. I'm writing to you that you would purge your life of some of these things. You see, it is just right that we as his people would seek to keep a clear conscience before the Lord. I wonder how many of us have a clear conscience before God this morning. You know, the psalmist said in Psalm 19 and verse 14, a prayer to the Lord. He said, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord. He didn't say... Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable among your people in the church. Uh, let, let me do the things that, that I can get away with. But he said, I, I want the things that I talk about and the things that I think about. When God looks at these things, I want him to be accepting and pleased with what is going on in my heart, in my life. I want to have a clear conscience before my God. Psalm 139, he said, he, he asked the Lord to search him. He, he, he said, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. He said, see if there be any wicked way in me. Lord, if there's something in my life that's not pleasing to you, cleanse it out of me so that I can live a life with a clear conscience before God. That's the admonition, that we would live a life Free of sin. Free of sin. For we are free from sin. We're free from the bondage of sin. So there's an admonition, but then I want you to notice the advocate. <laughs> because then he says in the very next sentence, and if any man sin. You see, the reality is I can come to you and I can say, don't sin. 
It's not good for you. It's destructive. It, it hurts your testimony. It hurts the cause of Christ. It's, it's damaging to your life and to your family. It hinders your fellowship. It steals your joy. Uh, and I could implore you and plead with you and say, don't sin. And guess what's going to happen? You're going to leave here today and you're going to sin. You say, how do you know that? Because I, I am one of you. <laughs> I'm going to leave here today. And I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to sin. Hopefully not today. <laughs> But the reality is I look at my life and, man, so often I fail and I, and I falter and, and, I, and I say things and I do things and I think things that aren't pleasing to the Lord. And I can look at my life and I can say, oh, man, I've messed up. Here I've determined in my heart I'm not going to sin. But I still do. I still fail. I still struggle. I am not perfectly sanctified yet one day I will be do you know that I'm on my way to being perfectly sanctified now it's not going to happen until this heart stops beating but one day I'm going to stand in his presence and be perfectly sanctified no more sin that's that's probably one of the greatest things about heaven right there it's just being free from from the presence of sin free from the power of sin entirely there will be no more corrupt flesh that's, that, that's coming after me and, 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 and fighting the, the spirit of God within me and, and, and trying to get me to yield to my flesh. That, that'll be gone and I'll be perfectly whole in the presence of my Savior. And I'm looking forward to that day, but until that day, there's a reality. There's going to be some sin. And folks, I'll be honest with you, today... I feel more guilty about my sin than I ever have before. I mean, there are times that I just look at my life and I say, Lord, and I, and I, mean, I mean this sincerely. I'm not saying this just because it's something to say. It, sometimes I ask the Lord, why would you choose to use me? Knowing everything you know about me, God being infinite in his understanding even before he saved me he knew what I would be you know why did he save me all the times that I've failed him all the times that I've had to ask forgiveness for things that I've asked forgiveness for many times before because I just don't learn and I say Lord why why would you care why would you love me why would you save me why would you choose to use me? Think about this. If everyone in this room knew everything about you that God knows about you, nobody would want to talk to you. That's true. And if everyone in this room knew everything about you that God knows about you, you wouldn't want to talk to them either. <laughs> You'd want to go crawl under a rock somewhere. And so would I. But the truth is, God knows all those things and still loves you, still cares about you, is still committed to working in your life. He's still committed to drawing you close to himself. He's still committed to using you for his honor and glory if you'll simply yield to him and let him do with you what he wants to do. I mean, God is good, is he not? And yes, it's true. God says, don't sin. Don't live in sin. Don't walk in sin. 
I'm writing these things to you that you sin not, but if any man sin, and you will, we have an advocate with the Father. Now the word advocate, it's, it's a tremendous word. It's one that we don't use a whole lot in our English language today. But the word, it, it, it speaks of someone who is a helper. It speaks of someone who comes, comes alongside of and, and, and defends on our behalf. An advocate, one who speaks on our behalf. It, it's like an attorney who stands before a judge representing his client. That's who Jesus is to us. He's the judge, but he's also our advocate. <laughs> he's also the one who goes to his heavenly father and pleads for us on our behalf. This is good news, folks. This is wonderful news. And, and, and the truth is, I've, I've talked to so many people. Remember, one of the express purposes of this book was that we would not only be saved, but that we would have assurance of our salvation, confidence in our salvation. And I have dealt with so many people who the reason that they struggle with their assurance of their salvation is because they struggle with sin. And there's just kind of this, this thinking in the back of their mind that I'm not good enough for God to save me. I'm not good enough for God to be... Uh, to care enough to keep me saved. And you know what? They're right. You're not good enough to be saved. I'm not good enough to be saved. But my advocate, my defender, he is Jesus Christ. Notice it's not just Jesus Christ. Look at it. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Why is it that I have an advocate that can go and, and, and defend me and, 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 and plead for me before the throne of God? Because, not because I'm righteous, but because he is righteous. And the confidence that I have in my salvation is not rooted in myself and my own goodness. It's rooted in the righteousness of Christ that has been freely offered to me by the grace of God. And though I ought not to live in sin, and though I ought not to, to go after sin, and I ought to, uh, when, when I fall into sin, I, I, should, I should be guilty of that. I, I should repent of that. I should confess that to the Lord. But here's what I can know. I have this confidence that when I fall and when I fail, I have a perfect advocate, a righteous and holy advocate who goes to me before his Father and pleads for me. And I am so thankful that I have that confidence. I have that advocate. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse number 25 speaks of Jesus Christ as our high priest. And it says, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost who come unto God by him. Seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Do you know that Jesus today, at this very moment, is standing at the right hand of his Father, interceding on your behalf and on my behalf? And the result of that is I have an uttermost salvation. And if you're saved, you do too. You can be 100% confident that regardless of your own failures, Jesus is enough. He's able to save you to the uttermost. You see, those that teach that somehow you can lose your salvation, that you can fall from the grace of God and, 
and, and, and lose the salvation that he has given to you, they don't understand that our salvation is not dependent upon us. It depends on him. He's the one who saved us, and he's the one who will keep us. And we ought not to sin. And if any man sin, <laughs> we have an advocate. We have an advocate. What a, what a tremendous truth that is. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, God is not interested in our righteousness, but the righteousness of His own Son. He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. In Christ, I have His righteousness. So he speaks of an advocate. And then he speaks of an atonement. Notice verse number three, or verse two rather. And here's a word we don't use much. It says, and he is the propitiation for our sins. I think about the only time that I've ever heard that word used in modern day English is in reference to some theological truth. But propitiation, it's a... It's a wonderful word, powerful word. If you're in the habit of taking notes, I would encourage you to write, write this down. The definition of propitiation. Are you ready for this? It is that which propitiates. That's good, isn't it? Amen? That which propitiates. It, it speaks of a sacrifice that satisfies that, that which propitiates, the propitiation, it is a, an acceptable sacrifice. It is that which fulfills justice. If you were driving home today and got pulled over by a state trooper for speeding and he gave you a fine, I don't know what Missouri speeding fines are, but probably too much. The last speeding ticket I got was a lot of years ago in North Dakota. And I was going way too fast on the interstate, and I got a fine for $25. And the, uh, the state trooper was very apologetic that I had to pay a $25 fee. I don't know what they are in Missouri, but let's just say you get a $100 fine. you got to pay $100. So you go down to the courthouse or wherever you go, and you write out a check in the amount of $100. And by paying that check, what does it do? It clears the account, right? You had a penalty, a fine, and that check satisfies the penalty. That check in that instance is the propitiation for the crime. Now we stand accused and guilty of a much more serious crime than speeding. We have broken God's law. We have rebelled against our Creator. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the just penalty for that sin is death. Not only physical, but also spiritual separation from God in, in a place of eternal torment. That's what we deserve. But Christ... 
And his mercy went to the cross on your behalf and on my behalf. And he took your sin upon himself and my sin upon himself. And there he paid the price. He paid the penalty for your sin. And you know what that made him? The propitiation. The acceptable sacrifice for sin. Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's who he is. And so just in case today you stand before God feeling guilty about your sin, which you ought to. If we would just understand who He is and who we are, every one of us would become guilty before Him. But if you stand here today and you say, I just, I just, don't, I just don't know, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm fearful about what waits ahead because I know that I've sinned against God, I've got good news for you. There is a propitiation, there's a payment that has been made. And it is Jesus Christ. Now, it's not a ritual. It's not a religion. It's a person. And John turns our attention to Jesus and says, that is where your confidence should be. He is the propitiation for your sins. He, he is the sacrifice that has been accepted by God. The focus of our salvation and our, and our righteousness and our holiness is in Christ. This ought to be words of comfort as well as words of challenge. These words should bring comfort because there is an answer to our sin problem. But they should also challenge us because now that we have received the righteousness of Christ, we are to aspire to His righteousness. Because of the grace that is freely given to us, now we have been called to live a life of sacrifice and obedience to Him. Not to earn anything with God, not to earn any favor with God that was completed on the cross in Christ. But simply because we love Him and because we have received such an unspeakable gift. The gift of salvation. And I want you to notice once again, I just want to point this out because it's here in the scriptures. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only. But also for the sins of the whole world. The sins of the whole world. Why is this so important? Because there, there are people who claim to be Bible teachers. And, and I'm telling you, this is permeating churches. Even good churches today are being permeated with this, this wicked doctrine of Calvinism that teaches that God has elected some to salvation and, and some to eternal damnation. And, and, and as part of that false teaching... What, one of the things that they teach is what, what's known as limited atonement, or some will call it particular atonement. That the, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross only applies to those who will be saved. He only shed his blood to pay for the sins of those who will be saved, and everyone else, there, there is no atonement. There is no salvation. There, there is no blood shed for them because they, they will not receive Christ, therefore... No payment was made for them. I just want you to know that is not a Bible doctrine. Look at this. He's the propitiation for our sins. Who's he talking about? Jews? No, he's not writing to Jews. He's writing to everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not writing to a particular group of people. He's writing to just save people in general. And he says he, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins... Every saved person, you can know Christ is the propitiation for your sins. But he doesn't stop there. He says, not for ours only. The sacrifice was not only for us, it was for everyone. 
Not everyone will receive it. Most people want to go about their lives trying to be their own propitiation. I'm going to try to make my own way. I'm going to try to be right with God on my own terms. I'm going to do that which I think is moral and just and right and hope that God will agree with me. And I'm just telling you, that's not, not going to work. But most, most of those people, they're going to live their lives that way. Most people will live their lives that way and then one day they're going to die and stand before God and he's going to say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me that work iniquity. It's tragic and it's sad, but I want you to know there's not a single person who is burning in hell today who can honestly say Christ didn't die for me because he did. He's the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does this mean to us? It means that there is no one who is outside the reach of the atonement of Christ. It means that there is no one who is too far gone for Christ to advocate for them. It means that there is no one who is a child of God who is beyond the admonition that we ought not to sin, but we ought to live in obedience to the Lord. And so he, he begins this powerful chapter of 1 John chapter 2 by just uh, this, this loving admonition. I, I'm writing these things to you that you sin not. Live holy. Live righteously. Live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And if any man sin, and when you sin, and when you fail, and when you fall, turn your eyes to the advocate. Turn your eyes to the atonement. And realize that he has saved us, forgiven us, and keeps us by his power.